Hello and welcome to the Unnamed Automotive Podcast. My name is Sammy Hajj Assad, and with me, as always, is my good friend and fellow automotive journalist, Benjamin Hunting. Say hi to the people, Ben. Greetings, human listeners. Greetings to everyone. If this is the first time you're listening to our podcast, thank you for trying something new. And if you're a long-time listener, thanks for sticking it out. Um, I will reiterate, Ben and I are a pair of automotive journalists. We're also pretty good friends, I would say. That's the word I would use to describe our relationship. Pretty good friends. Um, In fact, I'm going to ask Ben to tell people all about where they can find his work. Ben, can you do that for me? You can find my work at Motor Trend, at Car and Driver, at Driving Line, and at Inside Hook. And you can find my work at driving.ca, uh, autotrader.ca, TechSpot, and Nouveau Magazine. And even though they might spell my name wrong, trust me, it's me, okay? <laughs> as long as it's spelled right on the check. That's right. So, Ben, we've got a bunch of cool cars to talk about this week. And I'm going to let you start it off because, well, it's, it's, a, it's a bunch of Korean cars this week. So I want you to take a, take a start with our, I guess... It's not really a mass market vehicle, but it's the more mainstream brand, right? It's a more mainstream brand, but it's definitely a niche car. But Sammy, spoiler alert, this also might be my car of the year. Whoa! Well, I'm going to say that maybe my car is kind of my car of the year. But wow, you just had to steal the spotlight from yeah, that's like, exactly, right away. That's how I do. <laughs> <laughs> Take so, that, Ben. So I drove the 2022 Hyundai Santa Cruz Limited. and right. And it's important to call it the Santa Cruz and not the Santa... Faye, because those two products are unrelated. Yes, but have very similar names. Thank you, Hyundai, for doing that. It actually confused me all week because my mind is very simple. Uh, But this, for people who aren't familiar with it, this year Hyundai decided to build a pickup truck. And more, more accurately, they decided to build a pickup because the Santa Cruz isn't really a truck. What they did was take the Tucson crossover, take a scalpel, slice off the rear cover on the cargo area, and make an open cargo bed. So in a lot of ways, the Santa Cruz is a pickup version of the Tucson. But what's most important about it is it's one of the only compact trucks on the market. We haven't had a compact truck since like 2011 when the Ford Ranger went away for a while and then came back as a midsize more recently. Now we have two. We have the Santa Cruz and the same year we have the Ford Maverick. And Sammy, Hmm. what's interesting about both of these trucks is they're totally non-traditional They use a unibody front-wheel drive design with available all-wheel drive. The Mavericks even offers a hybrid drivetrain. And they kind of slide into a totally uncolonized segment of the auto industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is worth pointing out, I think the midsize are supposed to be compact, but they're just not. They're huge. They're not. So the, the, the Santa Cruz is, I think, 15 inches shorter than the shortest midsize truck you can currently buy. That is pretty... I think that's pretty small, then. Yeah. Um... And then I want to add one more small like caveat in terms of in terms of taking a compact car and do and modif- a compact crossover and modifying it. I prefer this format rather than coupifying things, right? Where, where, you, <laughs> where you take away the practicality aspect completely. Well, right? you know, it's I, I it's interesting that you mention it as a practicality thing because in some ways this I agree with you. I'd rather have more Utes than than coupes, but there's an argument to be made that. In you some... silver coops. You yes. silver coops. Exactly. That's our, that's our mantra. That's, that's our a rant. t-shirt. Um, <laughs> I think, though, there's an argument to be made that there's the, the Tucson might be more practical than the Santa Cruz in some ways, but not in others. Because 
while this is a pickup and not a truck, as I mentioned, because it doesn't have the body on frame, it doesn't have anything rugged about it, really. It's not designed to go off-road. What it's designed to do is fit into a, a lifestyle where occasionally you require an open cargo bed. And and when I say open cargo bed, I mean like a 4.3 foot open cargo bed. Like it's That's very specific. 4.3 feet. Yeah. So again, <laughs> it's it's about a foot shorter than the shortest cargo box you can get and 2 feet shorter than the 6 foot boxes that are available on vehicles like the Ranger and the, the Tacoma yeah. and that kind of thing. Um it it's it's kind of much like Honda did with the Ridgeline, which is the other unibody pickup on the market, which is a lot bigger than the Santa Cruz. Uh, Hyundai decided to make the bed as useful as it could, despite it being super short. So it has a lockable under bed storage that is also mm-hmm. waterproof. It has a whole bunch of cubbies in the back of the of the um, cargo bed. So kind of in the sides, like, you know how Ram used to have the Ram box? It's kind of like that, but like much smaller. Okay. It has a whole bunch of tie downs. It has a top section and a lower section. So you can slide pieces of wood and whatnot in in kind of layers in the back and it has a way where you can extend the bed with the tailgate down because you're going to need to do that if you're hauling like a bicycle or a, a dirt bike or a kayak or something because again it's very very short in the back but right at the same time it's realistic because most people never ever use the cargo bed of their pickups most pickups haul air most of the time even at full-size yeah. trucks right i mean you might need it one or two times a year the rest of the time it's just kind of sitting back there so when i say unless you, unless you use it for work like you're a contractor yes but if you're a yeah. contractor you're not buying this truck no you're getting something bigger and much more capable and rugged and less less focused on these adventure lifestyle things exactly and and i think that that's an important point when looking at the maverick and the santa cruz it's you have to get away from the idea there's a single template for all trucks. Yeah. And I think that we're start finally starting to do that in the market because once upon a time in the 80s and the 90s, there were big trucks and there were small trucks. The Ranger, the S10, they were legitimately small compared to full-size trucks. And then something happened in the 2000s where mid-size trucks appeared on the scene, kind of led by the Dodge Dakota. And... Everyone decided that everything had to get bigger. So full-size trucks got bigger. Mid-size trucks got bigger. They became closer and closer in terms of capability. And it largely became a a question of uh, not so much what you can afford because, like, a top-tier Ranger is similar in price to a a low-tier F-150. But what would fit in your garage? Yeah. And I think now that we have these compact trucks, we're getting some actual differentiation in the market. And I think we need to evaluate them in a totally different way. Okay, so what is that? What do you? What do you? How do you feel about that? That new way? What do you? What? How did you approach the Santa? What's it called again? Santa Cruz. <laughs> Santa Cruz. So uh, remember how I said earlier that the Tucson kind of seems like maybe it's more practical because you have that whole covered cargo area and you can fold seats down and, and it's actually longer than what you would have inside a Santa Cruz's bed if you wanted it. Yeah, but you can you can isn't there like a tonneau cover on the Santa Cruz? Yeah, but you can't like yeah. f- there's no midgate. You can't fold down the back seats and like extend it even further. So what but I like first- the, the the limits uh, like the height wise limits of something on uh, in a bed is the sky. So you can just put whatever you want back there, right? Yeah, but how many of us are are, are hauling really <laughs> tall things versus very tall things can always be laid flat, right? So I okay. think that's kind of when I first looked at the Santa Cruz. My point being that I was like, eh, this seems really useless. Like, if I can't even put a bike in it without having the the tailgate down, what's the point? Then I drove it, and I realized that it is a completely different approach to pickup trucks. This is, Sammy, by far the best driving pickup on the market, regardless of size. 
Really? You think so? I found it to be a little stiff, but I had a very brief period of time with it and not really great roads. So you tell me what you mean by, by that in terms of drivability. Like, it, like- is, it, it, it is quicker than any midsize truck out there uh, because it's 400 to 700 pounds lighter, depending on what you're comparing it to. This, this truck weighs in around 4,000 pounds. So right away, it has a huge weight advantage over any other pickup. So you throw in the fact that the model I drove, the Limited, has a 281 horsepower turbocharged V8 with 311 pound-feet of torque and an 8-speed dual-clutch automatic transmission. It is quick. It does 0 to 60 in something like 7.5 seconds, which is wow. pretty reasonable for a non-performance vehicle. I think yeah. some you can actually get it down to 6 seconds uh, for for some models. Okay. and, uh, and so, felt- Not some models, sorry. Some some testers have gotten it down to six seconds. I think seven and a half is like the official figure from, San- from, from Hyundai. And you felt like this car's sort of, that responsiveness from the, from the motor is, is right up there for you. Is that what really dro- drove it home? No, not just that. It, it, okay. it, it, it's, it's super quick, but mm-hmm. it also outhandles absolutely everything else. It is so much smoother to drive than any other pickup. Uh, well, I mean, that makes sense because the Tucson drives pretty well. Yeah, and this is a Tucson with a cargo bed. And that is honestly such a refreshing take on what a pickup truck could be. Because most of the time, if I'm commuting, I don't want to be... I, I don't need hardcore off-road gear. I don't need hardcore towing gear if the truck I'm using is mostly used as a commuter. And then I get away on weekends and I do fun stuff with it. And yeah. the Santa Cruz is so incredibly smooth. I mean, obviously, it has, I think, 20-inch tires. So there is some roughness. if you're, And, and the suspension is somewhat more rugged than what you would yeah. have from a, a traditional crossover. But it's not a huge difference. So on rougher roads, it's remarkably planted. I was incredibly impressed by how well this vehicle drove. To the point where I would take it, I think, over any midsize truck currently available. Any midsize, even Any like mid-size a truck. ZR2 or, or... Yeah, I would. I would. Wow. It, and and the, the other reason why I would take it over a ZR2 is because it's so much nicer inside. Yeah, the interior is, is a huge step up from what we typically see in the midsize segment, which are focused on being a little bit more, I guess, maybe utilitarian, or that's where they cheap out a bit. Yeah. Um, this thing seems like it, it just swapped over what we already know and love about Hyundai's... Um, crossover interiors right exactly there's nothing cheap about it it had my version had a whole bunch of gear that i wouldn't really need like it had leather seats i'd rather just have cloth seats mm-hmm. it had a moonroof i don't need that but i did like the big infotainment screen i think it's like 10.2 inches it had a digital gauge cluster it had heated and cooled seats it had a heated steering wheel uh it all, wor- it all worked i didn't really have any issues with it the other thing that's nice is even though the truck is shorter than other midsize ve- other midsize pickups, the mm-hmm. it, most of that shortness is in the bed. The cab is actually pretty big. In fact, the the second row of seating in a Santa Cruz is going to be more comfortable for larger people than something like a Ranger or a Tacoma. It's just kind of a roomier uh, arrangement. Plus, if you pop up the, like I had a, that Nissan Frontier a few weeks ago that we talked about on the show, and I really wasn't impressed with the underseat storage that it had in the back where you kind of pop up the bench and there were kind of a few bins that you could put things in the the santa cruz had way more usable storage in the back uh compared to the frontier which has also been redesigned for this year so overall it's a more practical truck for doing things that aren't towing a huge load although it will do five thousand pounds and things that aren't going off-road uh it's got 8.6 inches of ground clearance but it doesn't okay. have like locking differentials or anything solid axles it's it's you know a primarily front wheel drive biased all-wheel drive system with terrain management mode so 
Mm. You could probably go through a muddy field or like, uh, you know, a grassy two track, <laughs> that kind of thing. But you're not going to go rock climbing with it. And I don't care because I'm not going to go rock climbing in it anyway. So I think for like the majority of people who are looking for a useful truck they can tag in from time to time to perform whatever task, the Santa Cruz is a really good fit. Okay, but like, tell me, how useful is it? Like, can I, I can imagine, you know, the, the, the simple sort of like home landscaper, you know, throwing some soil or mulch back there, being yeah. okay with it. Um, if you want to go I camping thought... or something like that, sure, you could throw stuff back there as well. I put a Christmas tree back there that was five yeah. feet long, and I did it diagonally, and I was able to close the tonneau cover, which is kind of like a rolling cover for the back of the truck. The tonneau cover is a bit of a problem because it does protect your stuff, but it takes up like a fair amount of room at the front. So that's something to keep in mind. I think it's an accessory. And I also think Hyundai is having trouble sourcing them right now. Okay. Which is kind of What true. makes you say that? Because I've, I've heard owners talk about, or people who are buying them, not being able to get them. I thought the tonneau cover was like standard. It looks so well integrated into the vehicle, right? I'm pretty sure it's not standard. Wow. Okay. Yeah. But all, that also kind of uh, brings me to my, my next uh, point about things that are standard and things that aren't. So in Canada, and this pisses me off, there are only two versions of the Santa Cruz available. They're both top trim levels, both with the turbo engine. In the United States, though, there's an entry level version, and it starts at twenty three grand, twenty four grand. Uh, it's front wheel drive, one hundred ninety one horsepower, two and a half liter four cylinder. I haven't driven it. You've lost me on all of that. Actually, that doesn't sound great. Yeah, but it's it's cheap. But again, it's not as cheap as the cheapest Maverick, which I think starts at nineteen thousand. I don't know if that truck actually exists. <laughs> I don't know if you can get a base Maverick anymore. I know they had to stop orders on. I think all of the front wheel drive models are hybrids, and I think the hybrid models are sold out for this model year. But even if you went to the most expensive Maverick, Sammy, it is still a lot cheaper <laughs> than the Santa Cruz. Because my Santa Cruz was something like 46000 or something like that. Canadian? Me, no. Um, oh, ooh, okay. Let me double check. Let me double check. Sorry. The, the, the top tier in, in is like 39700 Okay. And mine had a few options on it. So I'd say mine was just over forty. But I think the most expensive Maverick is like just over thirty. If okay. I remember correctly. And that's and you can add stuff like FX4 package and whatnot for the Maverick and bump the price up. But it's still not as expensive as the Santa Cruz. So that's a lot of money for the truck. And you start to get into that weird thing where it's like, hey, my compact truck costs as much as a Honda Ridgeline, which is like way bigger. Maybe I should just get that. And then you're like, oh, my Ridgeline costs as much as a Toyota Tundra, which is way bigger. Maybe I should just get that. So you're going to have to draw the line yourself. I kind yeah. of feel like maybe the sweet spot is the SEL trim, SEL premium, something like that, which is like thirty five thousand. That that's the cheapest turbo you can get, and that would probably do it for you. I think you definitely want to have that turbo motor. But uh, aside from pricing, this is pretty much the perfect package, and it's a vehicle that completely took me by surprise. I did not expect to like it at all. As a traditional truck person, I thought this would be a toy. And I'm not super into lifestyle vehicles a lot of the time, but this one just makes so much sense to me. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I want to talk to you a little bit more about the usability. Do you see yourself, is it big enough, is the, is the bed big enough to haul a set of tires around? Or, yeah, definitely. For and sure. do you think the, the, towing cap, the towing rating is, what did you say, 5,000? 5,000 pounds. That's pretty decent. Um, and then in terms of the pricing, it's actually uncommon for for Hyundai to be so off on their pricing, isn't it? They're usually quite competitively priced. Well, I think Um, that they're competitive at the low end. And I think that they've realized that this truck is so niche that it doesn't, it's not really competing against anything. 
I mean, if you're the kind of person who looks at a spec sheet and is only interested in max towing and only interested in you know um, suspension travel and, and hardcore off-road stuff, then you're not even going to cons- you're not even going to consider this truck. But if you actually drive it, you're going to understand the pricing more, I think, because okay. it does really feel like a premium vehicle. Interesting. Um, I saw that the. Um, I mean, I know this is this is. I need to see this. It was one of the fastest-selling vehicles in October, which I thought was quite um, telling. Um, let me make sure I'm not making that up, though. Um, yeah, I guess it was pretty popular. So it seems like people bought into this um, into this lifestyle vehicle, and I do think it it is important to actually talk about a car that fits your life rather than um and your needs rather than a car that is just the most vehicle for the money which is why we have a ton of big ginormous suvs and pickups on the on the market um and uh i mean that's not it's not uh it's not great i don't think that's a great thing to 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 boast about because those vehicles take up space they take up they use up more fuel um yeah i saw about 19 20 miles per gallon combined uh with the santa cruz and that was there was a lot of highway for that. I, I took it on a pretty extensive road trip. Uh, but you're right. I mean, more isn't always more. And the truck world seems to have forgotten that, which is why I think, you know, I'm always I've said it many times on the podcast. The, I always want to cheer the idea of having choice for consumers mm-hmm. and, and, and enthusiasts to be like, you know, I can get the, the super fast car. Or I can get this super light car or I can get this smaller truck that fits in my driveway and I can actually park it at work, you know, like, things like that. Um, as opposed to there being a single uniform or a single idea of what a truck has to be or what a sports car has to be. And one final thing I want to ask you about is the styling, the exterior styling. Now, I've commented that the Tucson, with its creases and all that stuff, doesn't look very attractive. In fact, it looks like it's been like dented in, in, near the side profile. Does the Santa Cruz still feel the same way in that regard in terms of you know that edgy styling that language that they use i think it looks really good uh especially the top trim with the light the led lighting on the front Mm -hmm. uh i really like the way they kind of it has like a flying buttress kind of um cab where the bed meets it and it looks dynamic and exciting and i think they did a really good job on the styling i think they could have done a little bit better i don't like that that raising like window line oh i'm into it um at the on the second set of doors i wish and then there's like a blacked out and then there's this weird blacked out component yeah, um, by the me. by the bed. Give me all of you're, it. You're wild. Okay. So if like, the point here is if you could get this at that twenty five to $30,000 price point. If I could get this truck for 30000 If I could get a turbo Santa Cruz all-wheel <laughs> yeah, drive. If you could get the best equipped model for, I don't no, no, know, no. 25 bucks. No, no, no. If I, I could, if I could get a turbo all-wheel drive with cloth seats and no moonroof and like just heated seats. I don't need cooled, whatever. For like 30 I would be super happy. I yeah. mean, it's super it's, – it's, that would be like a dog-friendly daily driver. It's It just – it's. I actually went and started pricing leases on these because I thought that my partner, I think she would really like this as a daily. Uh, and that's where I was shocked by the pricing in Canada and very quickly changed my mind on that. I'm going to have to wait until these have been on the market for a little while, I think. But uh, yeah, I I know, understand that Hyundai isn't making like the work truck version of this vehicle. <laughs> it's not not in the cards. And I'm also curious, I don't know if they want to make this like a volume, I mean, that's crazy. Of, of course, every automaker wants to sell as many tr- as many vehicles as possible, but I don't think this is being 
thrown around as eagerly as other other products in their lineup. I mean, it seems like uh, like like if this is the car, if this is the truck for you, here it is. But we have all these other really mainstream um vehicles for for so many sh- that will fit so many shoppers needs well i think that it's a big risk for them right like they yeah. don't they don't know how it's going to turn out so the if you look at the pricing of the tucson the top tier tucson starts at 34 as well so mm-hmm. i'm not sure if they did actually start selling a lot of santa cruises i'm assuming they're all built on the same line it's not going to be a big deal if some of that production shifts over to to santa cruz from tucson i don't think they're stealing from themselves basically and then in terms of in term in terms of taking um, risks in the pickup truck uh, sort of market, like we saw a couple of automakers take take risks in this in this field. So we had we saw um, first and foremost, I think, and the biggest flop of them was the Titan, the Nissan Titan, which introduced this XD trim level and and tried to you know walk between these two worlds. Of- when you when you say when you say this this segment, what do you mean exactly? Uh, trucks. I think truck trucks in general. This is not the same segment as Santa Cruz. What I mean to say is, automakers taking risks on in pickup in the world of pickup trucks and how that works out for them. So I think the Titan kind of flopped on that risk that it was taking in terms of the Cummins diesel and the XD the XD trim line um, and this sort of like quarter uh half ton truck that could do as much as like a three quarter ton truck well because it wasn't really a half ton truck right like they got messed up with their gross vehicle weight and all of a sudden they had a very heavy truck that had a non-competitive tow rating it was it was a truck that was supposed to be able to it was positioned as like you said a semi heavy duty but it it was matching like the f-150 in terms of tow rating which is a light duty truck and it was doing it with a very heavy platform and a very heavy drivetrain because that diesel is not light so it kind of shot itself in the foot it had no advantage i guess is is kind of what happened with that truck and what I mean to bring up is, like, why haven't other automakers – I guess Honda has taken their unibody um, mainstream or mass market vehicle and said, let's make a truck out of this. And I think I it's because – kind of did with the Ridgeline and the other vehicles that it kind of shared so many parts with. But but the Ridgeline is like a cautionary tale because it doesn't yeah. really sell. And the, the difference, I think, between the Ridgeline and the Santa Cruz is the Ridgeline is a very mainstream product. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the Ridgeline has definite competition from mid-sized trucks in terms of size and capability. And they kind of so, tried they tried to meet them head on. The Santa Cruz yeah. is a lot smaller and it's coming in through the side door. And that is something that works to Hyundai's favor. It's the same with the Maverick. The Maverick and doesn't it feels really like it's doing its own thing rather than, like you said, meeting the competition and doing everything what they're doing with like a Honda batch, right? And it'll be interesting. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see what happens to the Maverick too, because you can't tell me that when someone comes into the dealership and looks at a Maverick, the salesman isn't going to say, well, you know what? I could also get you into this Ranger for maybe similar money or a little bit more and try to upsell them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it, Hyundai doesn't have that capability and Honda never has either. So those are two other different situations. So I, it, it, again, these are unique vehicles. And they're going to speak to unique customers and they're being sold by different companies with different philosophies and strategies. So that I think that's going to inform how they're accepted by the public and how many we see on the streets over the next year. Very interesting. So I'm curious. I mean, the, the year end is coming soon and I think we should do a little roundup of, uh, of our favorite vehicles. But it's cool to hear how much this um, meant to you. And uh, and whether or not this is your car or truck of the year. Yeah, I, I honestly expected to write this off as a toy or as a poorly executed attention grab. 
It is a thoroughly excellent vehicle, and I would drive one every day. Cool. Um, I have a similar feeling about the Genesis GV70 that I'm driving this week, and I know we've talked about the GV70 so much, and I'm going to try to keep this as short as possible because I don't want to uh, repeat the things that we've talked about before. However, the model that I'm driving is a little bit different than the ones we've driven in the past in that it uses a smaller engine, a 2.5 liter turbocharged engine, which makes, um, I got to make sure I got these numbers right, it should be 250, I think. Uh, no, 300 horsepower and 311 pound-feet of torque. And that's paired with an 8-speed automatic, and every single GV70 um, comes with all-wheel drive. And I think that's pretty important, too. This model Every, every part- single GV70 comes with all-wheel drive? Yeah, man. Okay, I didn't know that. I thought you could still get a rear-wheel drive model. No. How crazy is that? I mean, it's. I guess it's kind of crazy. I, I, I think it's because in my mind, I see, like, GV70, GV80 as being, like, the FX, the Infinity FX. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't mean in terms of, like, impracticality, but just in terms of, like, performance, so. And in terms of kind of being, like, related to their to their sedan counterparts, right? I don't know how related they actually are. I thought that... Yeah, GV, I agree. I think they're pretty different platforms at this point. Well, I think actually the motors are very close. Like, the yes. G80 and the GV80 are very... Are, I think use the same engine. Yeah, like drivetrain The 70 sure. still uses a three-point, I think, three... But like back in the day when Nissan and Infiniti were making the the FX, it, it was the FM platform, right? Like the front mm-hmm. midships where they had the, they, they called it that because the V6 engine and the V8, I guess, were pushed way back into the firewall. Mm-hmm. And they used that for like the, the G sedan, the G coupe, the 350Z, uh, and the FX crossovers. So and then the EX. The Was the EX a shortened FM I didn't. I didn't realize that. That makes total sense. I really like the it EX. Was a wagon, G class. It was, it was a wagon, totally, G class. It was totally a wagon. It was. It was one of the stealth wagons. It was like before. It was kind of the all road, but they, they just didn't excel. Um, they didn't. Um, what's the word? They didn't recognize it as such. They tried to make it a crossover SUV. I really liked how it drove, but it had no space inside. Like the cargo space was so small. I remember I had one over the holidays many years ago and I tried to fit everything I needed for like a a week long trip to see family. And we had the seats folded and like packed to the roof. And we were only two people. We had a cat with us. We had no idea where to put the cat. It was really a tight squeeze. Otherwise, I would probably have one as a beater. Okay. Um, I agree with you on all these. I think the the EX and FX are like these oddballs in the industry. And I've always looked at like, you know, FX like residuals or resale value has plummeted. You can get an FX for like almost nothing, it well, seems. I mean, the fuel mileage is really not great. <laughs> yeah, but listen to that motor. And there was like a V8 version. Yeah, the FX 45. I remember that. And 50, yeah. yeah. So anyways, back to this GV70. While I think it's important to talk about those infinity models because they talked about they were brought up during a time where infinity was super competitive and really pushed um the envelope in this in their segment and i think nowadays i don't know if we get that same vibe from so many automakers i think genesis is the one that is currently trying to get their name out as much as possible um by offering as much car or as much features or at least as much performance and really attractive styling i see so much um, like like parallels between what Genesis is is doing right now and what um, the other Japanese luxury automakers have done in the past, and I think they're they're on the they're on the path to success. I think that if they keep this up, um, and they recently just revealed the design of the new G90 flagship sedan, they're just 
it's going to be hard to compete. Yeah, the, the G90 is a huge mic drop, I think, because it's this giant, super decadent-looking car that mm-hmm. has a whole bunch of road presence, and it's going to be hi- like it's not going to be hyper expensive, but it's going to be probably the most expensive Genesis project uh, product until they get a, a, a three-row, a large three-row SUV out there. But yeah. it's also in a segment where no one's going to buy it. Like it's because <laughs> no one's buying full-size SUVs. Period. Right. So I, I think it would – I really – the G90 is the, the my white whale, the, the, the vehicle I haven't been able to drive for the last two years because every time I book it, something happens to it and I yeah. don't get to drive it. But I'm sure it's fantastic and I'm sure it will be at the same level as, say, a 7 Series or an S-Class. And I, I know it sounds crazy to say that, but I honestly believe that. But I don't think it will matter because people just aren't buying these big cars anymore. So to spend yeah. – what I'm saying is to spend all that money developing something so cool that no one's going to buy is a big flex. And I appreciate yeah. it. Well, we'll see, right? Now, let's talk about the GV70. And usually we don't – you don't want to talk too much about – or you don't need to talk too much about bar- bargain hunting or value um, when it comes to luxury vehicles. But the base GV70 starts at 41 and the fully loaded – um, 3.5 liter all-wheel drive model is $21,000 more. Okay? Whoa, wait, wait, wait a minute. You're saying it's 50% more to step up? Yeah. And that's why I think talking about this 2.5 liter uh, model, which can top out at 52000 In fact, it tops out at just uh, $150 more than the base V6 model. So you're still spending more for a smaller engine, but you're going to get more equipment, okay? Yeah. And I actually... The, cool, the super cool interior that everyone loves about the Genesis. Yeah. yeah. And, but the smaller engine, and are you going to be okay with having... Uh, it, it's, like, rated at, like, I think 75 less horsepower. Um, and I actually think that that is an appropriate, um, mid, like, mid-ground. I think that this vehicle still feels super advanced, really in, in, impressive in terms of its features, um, and, and you know what, I, I've been, like I said, I've driven the, the 3.5 in the past and there are features in this that I didn't realize like were active and it has like an active lane changing feature, kind of like, uh, you know, Cadillac with super cruise, it can change lanes for you, which I thought was, um, was a re- really weird. But uh, um, are you that lazy though, Sammy? Like, no, I mean... I'm not. I, but it was weird because I was using the adaptive cruise control, uh, and I tapped the, I mean, I tapped the, the lane change or the signal and uh, in the head-up display, it started, like, describing what it was doing. And when I took over, it said, oh, you took over. Lane change, <laughs> so disappointing. Lane change assist uh, deactivated. So I was like, oh, what, the, what on earth is lane change assist? So I ended up using it. And uh, it actually can, can do it just with a tap of the, of the lane change or the signal. See, that's scary, uh, though, because I don't feel like semi-autonomous driving features should catch you by surprise. <laughs> yes. You know? So, I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure if I took a closer look at the spec sheet and all the features involved, um, I would be aware of it. Or, you know, if a dealership um, representative or an automaker representative explained the vehicle to you, which I imagine, you know, Genesis might be doing, might be sending people to explain these features to their cars. Um but I also don't think that's – I don't think – when, when I think about reality, I doubt that's actually happening, it's, right? it remind, it's, it's almost like, you know, you're using Microsoft Office and, like, Clippy yeah. jumps up and is like, it looks like you're writing a ransom note. Would you like some <laughs> – except in this case, it's like, it looks like you're trying to change lanes. Would you like some assistance? Like, I don't yeah. know, man. I, I, don't, I don't need that hand just coming down and grabbing. Like, there's, it's one thing to have an autonomous – semi-autonomous or a safety feature that auto-breaks because you didn't see whatever was in front of you. 
Okay, yeah. I can get that. I don't necessarily need a warning for that. But for something that just I'm changing lanes and maybe I don't feel like minutely turning my wrists to one direction or the other, that that's a bit. I gotta, much. Pres- I gotta preserve my wrists. I think you and I, I know both why. Know. I know exactly yeah. why. That my wrist, my wrists, they take a they take a, a he- like a beating really throughout my my years, and uh, I really do need to ensure that they stay uh, they stay pristine. And for, and for people who don't know Sammy, he is also a competitive trombone player. So his his wrist action is. I think you're actually insured on that, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, I need to be because if anything happens there, my career, both you know, as a writer. And as a trombonist, and the other extracurricular activities that I that I participate in, um, I need I need these wrists. My, really impacted my by wrist, wrist actually like grinds like a cement grinder um, <laughs> to date, and I, and it, it really throws people off when I can do it on on command. Wow. Um, but let's talk about the usability of the vehicle. I think one of my biggest complaints with the GV70 is that it, um, practicality speaking, it's not as large as some of the other vehicles in its class. I think actually X, uh, X3 and uh, GLC are, are pretty spacious, and they can also have like flat folding, or other vehicles in this class can have flat folding rear seats. And the GV70 doesn't have that. So it's worth pointing out that if you're going to be sliding anything back there, you're going to have to get it over this little like hitch, this uh, this... Yeah, that that is frustrating because, I mean, it's already a small crossover to begin with, so you'd kind of hope that the interior design would do its absolute best to make the use of what space is available. Yeah, and I think as a whole, the cabin, especially up front, the cockpit area, can feel a little tight like a sports sedan would. And I don't know if not every, if, if every auto uh, – sorry, if every – owner or car shopper in the segment wants a car to feel like it's wrapped around them or if they want something that's a little bit more airy like say the uh the xc60 i was driving last week although at least this one has an infotainment system that is far more uh functional and easy to use yeah it definitely does have that cockpit feel that's that's very true and i thought that was a difference between the gv70 and the gv80 the gv80 was (laughs) more open up front absolutely and then finally my model has um this is something that i didn't i haven't seen very frequently and i want to know if your experience has seen it um in in the past cargo cargo um what are they called cargo nets okay i want to talk about cargo nets because most of the cargo nets i see are usually around the tailgate um and the one that is in the gv70 is actually flat on the on the trunk floor on the area floor how does this work how do you use this my cadillac has a flat on the floor cargo net and you just stash you staff stuff you stash stuff underneath that and it just holds it down like it like a roof basket. Yeah, exactly. It's like if you don't want stuff sliding around in the trunk of the car. Like you could theoretically put groceries under it, I guess, because mine has a pretty decent stretch. But uh, I used it whenever I had like let's say you're you're coming home from somewhere and you have one thing you don't want rolling around. You know, it's always hard to one like if, if thing. You're tr- you know that you know that one thing that you just can't get rolling. No, I guess a bottle of wine that you threw in the back. No, but if your trunk <laughs> is if your trunk is full, it's easier. Yeah. It's easy to have stuff not slide because it's it's supporting itself. But if you only have like one item, it's going to move around, especially if you're driving aggressively. So that's kind of what I think the idea is behind that kind of net. And then one final thing I want to point out, again, usability and practicality wise, the middle seat in the rear of the vehicle, um, legroom is just not there. There's a like little hump, a tunnel, a transmission tunnel or whatever it might be that uh, really impacts the rear, um, the rear, that, that person's legroom. Like, yeah. wow, what's wrong with me? I, just I don't know. Struggle. I still think that the GV70 overall 
is among the best vehicles that I've driven this year because I think it just it just upended this segment. And every other automaker really has to pay attention to what Genesis is is doing. And now we're seeing refreshes of some of their older product, like the G70 and the, the G80. And we're going to see what, what continues going forward because I think um, the strategies from these other automakers are, are going to play a, a significant part. The only thing that is missing right now are hybrid and plug-in hybrid um, um, options. And I know that isn't a big deal, but, you know, other other automakers offer these things. And uh, they they will be, you know, Genesis is losing out to those potential customers who may want um, either emission-free driving or, or better fuel economy. I'd also like to see Genesis do a coupe or a sports car of some kind. Uh, yeah. it, it, they're obviously not going to sell very many of them, but it would be kind of a halo thing that would be nice. I mean, think about Lexus with the LC. I mean, so many there are so many uninteresting Lexus vehicles that are just very comfortable and kind of wallpapery. But the LC is a huge. Um, it's like a big. What would you use bat signal that tells people, hey, we can yeah. build super cool stuff. Genesis doesn't really have any super boring cars, so the idea of adding a halo car on top of that is just exciting to me. What do you think the coupe would be if they're going to make it? Would it be something on that ultra high end scale like a LC, or would it be something like a four series or um, or a five or S five? You know, on the lower end. It's hard to tell because I don't think either of those cars would sell very well. So I know, neither car would. But you, just as you mentioned, it needs to be that sort of like flex. We got this. You're going to pay attention to this brand. It would be cheaper plate. for them to do the small one because they already have the platform. I think. But uh, in terms of whether a business case, it might make more sense to do or as much sense, sorry, to do the larger, more crazy one because they'll sell fewer of them, but the pricing and profit will be higher. I have to say as well, the comments that I get on this vehicle about the design, people are immediately attracted to it. I've had people ask me if that's a new Porsche Macan. Um, I've had people ask me if that was a Bentley. I've had uh, Alfa Romeo comments. You've had this people is... put a knife to your throat and ask for the keys. Yeah, I, that was that was a tough day. But, you know, <laughs> we, once I showed him the lane-changing assist, he was like, I'm out of here, forget this. But, um, you know, it, it is interesting to see just how a fresh design like this can really catch people's eye. I didn't think, you know, I thought all of these... SUVs kind of like look blobby in the same, but uh, clearly um, Genesis knows what it's doing in terms of catching eyeballs. So uh, I want to move on to a new segment that we're we're going to be doing this month and probably next month as well, where we talk about driving tips. And this is something that people have written in and asked us, hey, um, you know, could you do more stuff about performance? Could you do more stuff about motorsports? Well, since it's December, I believe this is the first or second podcast we're doing in December. For a lot of people who are listening, the weather's getting colder. Maybe there's snow. Maybe there's ice. And the reason I bring this up is because performance driving, Sammy, a lot of people ask me, hey, what's the point of like going onto a racetrack or going to an autocross course? And like, other than having fun, is there anything practical that I could actually take from that experience and use it on the street? And yeah, the, the answer is absolutely yes. Yeah. Um, especially when it comes to limited uh, or like poor traction sort of conditions like rain or snow that we see in the, in the winter now. Yeah, because a, a big part of performance driving is understanding the limits of your vehicle. 
And a big part of understanding the limits of your vehicle is understanding traction and and, and friction. And that when I when tires, I, talk, I think tires. You, it's not just the limitations of your vehicle. It's those tires, man. Like they do so much. Yeah. So your tires can only they can only do so much, as Sammy says. But to to kind of break it down, there are three basic things that you do with your vehicle every single day. That's accelerate, brake, and turn. Every time you do one of those three things, you're asking the tires to use the limited amount of traction that they have to do that, to accomplish that task. And if you think about it, the amount of rubber that's actually touching the road under most cars, unless you have a very, very large tire, like a 300 series tire on a sports car, a very large SUV, it's it's very, it's what we call the contact patch that's actually making contact with the pavement. It, it often is about the size of a sheet of paper. Like a sheet of eight and a half by by mm-hmm. ten by eleven paper, you know, like whatever you'd have in your office in front of you. So you're asking the whole weight of the car that relies on that one contact patch piece of paper size to um, handle whatever it is you're throwing its way, and and that's fine most of the time. So if you the easiest way to understand, Sammy, when you accelerate a car, what 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 are the two things that can happen if you accelerate super hard? Uh, you can go forward or. Or you can go nowhere. <laughs> yeah. You can, so when you go nowhere, it's because... You spin out. That's you, what I mean. You spin the tires. You've overcome the amount of traction that they have. The same thing applies with braking. If you hit the brakes really hard, you can either stop effectively or you can lock the brakes up and uh, overwhelm the traction that the tires have and stop over a longer distance. And then finally, when you're turning, you can... Uh, you, well, I mean, oversteer isn't really a traction thing. It, it is in the sense because... You're transferring weight to the rear of a vehicle. Oversteer is what happens when you turn the wheel hard at a higher rate of speed and the rear of the vehicle slides out. And that happens because weight transfer... catch up, essentially. Yeah, the weight transfer to the rear of the vehicle overwhelms the traction that's available. And understeer is when the opposite happens. You turn the wheel and nothing happens. You don't, you don't actually turn. You keep plowing straight. And that's because the weight transfer on the front of the car is overpowering the traction of those front tires. So how does this all relate to winter driving, Sammy? Well, you've got reduced traction in the winter, right? Like you just don't have as much, um, I think, margin as you do on, on dry pavement. Yeah, it's it's a lot easier to overcome the limits. So whereas on a racetrack, you might have to be going really fast to slide out of control or to notice you're not braking effectively or to, you know, you have to really hammer the gas to spin the tires off a start. If you're on snow or ice, you can probably do it at like 10 miles an hour if if (laughs) conditions are bad enough or if your tires aren't appropriate for the conditions. Um, So this this whole background is just to kind of talk about Uh, On a racetrack or in the winter, the idea of knowing the limits of the traction that you have and then modifying the inputs you you provide to your vehicle to reflect that. And Sammy, one of the most effective ways, I think, to visualize how that works is to imagine your steering wheel, your brake, and your accelerator are all connected by a single piece of string. And how would that work exactly? So basically, you know, you have to imagine that for every sort of input or that you have on one of those items, you have to kind of reduce the input on the other ones, essentially, right? So, you like, have to so balance like if, if, if I turn to the left, I kind of have to pull up off the gas at the same yeah, time? Yeah, I, I would think that's appropriate, yeah. Okay, and then when I, when I brake, I, I, I maybe have to put the wheel straight again. That's right. So that's um, all, it's all interconnected. And this is it's, – it's kind of a primitive way to visualize it. 
obviously you can turn and brake at the same time. Obviously you can accelerate with the wheel turned, but at their most extreme, your tires can't do everything all at once. So if you have the wheel cranked all the way to the right and you hit the accelerator, you're not going to turn. You're going to overwhelm the traction of either the front or the rear of the car. If you're braking with the wheel turned, it's going to do the same thing. It's all about having the balance and understanding how much of a of a of an angle you can have on the wheel while accelerating hard and how much of the brake you can push while you have the wheel turned in the other direction. Yeah. Uh I usually use that string that string sort of um visualization. Other people know the uh Friction circle, I think, is the term. Is the term for it? Yeah, friction circles. It's kind of like it's harder to describe uh, than to, it is to show. But imagine like the points of a compass, and mm-hmm. uh, at north you have acceleration, at south you have braking, and then you have left and right for east and west. And so, if you draw a circle that connects all those points, while you're while you're sitting in the middle, you can turn the wheel left and right, you can accelerate or you can brake. And you're doing only one thing. So you'll, you'll, go, you'll go back towards south, you'll accelerate towards north, or you'll turn in either direction. But if you're already accelerating and you start to turn, you'll notice that the, the circle that connects, let's say you turn to the right, so you're accelerating north and you're turning to, to the east, you'll notice you're much closer to the edge of the, track, of the uh, friction circle. And you, can, you can't turn as abruptly or you're going to go past through it and at that point you run out of friction which means you run out of traction so those are two ways to kind of think about how your vehicle is responding to your inputs and one of the first things i had to learn on the racetrack was to dial everything back to be smoother uh, because fast driving rarely looks fast it looks very undramatic you're not sliding around you're not there's no clouds of tire smoke it's really just very smooth inputs at the exact precise time they need to be made. So if you slow down your steering, if you slow down how hard you get on the accelerator or how hard you get on the brake, you're doing yourself a favor with the the string because you're not jerking it around. You're not uh, making a sudden demand in one area that's going to cause a problem somewhere else from a traction perspective. And it's really easy to practice this stuff in winter, whether you're in a parking lot or on a a low-speed road, where you can Hmm. just kind of figure out... um, how much input you can provide into the vehicle before you start to lose traction. And once you know that, you can project that onto dry pavement when you're going at a higher speed and kind of get a better feel for your vehicle. All right. Um, that, was a, that was a great point. I love that. We should talk about those sort of driving tips more often. Um, and I think expressing the benefits of getting on track or the, you know these high-performance driving um, schools or lessons or, or even autocross which is like a really low speed parking lot style motorsport where you still get a chance to really figure out the limits of your car right um so i think maybe we'll we'll keep this going uh, in the future every so often i think that's a good idea thank you ben um i also want to talk about uh, an email that we got from one of our listeners would you do you want to sum it up for us Sure. Well, we had, a, we had a listener named Logan who wrote in uh, to talk to us about the Prius Prime, which we had talked about last week. So Logan made a bunch of good points. Um, something that we didn't mention on the episode, Sammy, is how old the Prius Prime is. Yeah, which came because it came out a, uh, a while ago. I will admit it doesn't feel like it was that long ago, but I guess it's the like last four or two five years, years, I think. The last two years were kind of like a blur. They just like, disappeared. <laughs> But but his point was, hey, guys, this is an older hybrid, but you're kind of talking about it as though it should be able to match 
what vehicle you know like Kia and and everyone else that has come out with. So cut it a little bit of slack. Obviously, it's it's older, but also it's it's cheaper. So we had talked about the Prius the, the Prius Prime versus the Rav Four Prime, and there's there's a fairly big price difference between them. It can be about ten thousand dollars. So these are fair points, but I want to um, mention something else that Logan got me thinking about because of this. Toyota has a reputation for bringing technology out onto the market and then just kind of leaving it there for a really long time. Oh, you mean like they're a forerunner with a five-speed automatic over there? Yeah, it's it's like if if the vehicle sells, Toyota doesn't always feel the need to upgrade it. The Tundra is another perfect example. The Tacoma didn't get upgraded until it faced legitimate competition from the Colorado and the GMC Canyon. So kind of I think what happened with the Prius Prime was it was a good enough technology. It They knew that, it, you know... It was. It has an older battery technology, but they were like, we have a built-in base of Prius buyers who are going to buy this. It's going to work for them, and we're going to keep it out there as long as we can. And then the Rav Four had to be more competitive because there was more. Uh, by the time it came out, there were more plug-in hybrids in the SUV space, so they couldn't just kind of rest back on that. Absolutely, and I mean, this is what Toyota Toyota takes this approach because one, I think it wants to make a lot of money. And two, this is one of the ways I think they managed to achieve their sort of reputation for strong reliability, right? I mean, yeah, in, in a sense, I mean, it's, it's an uncomplicated and well-understood technology for them. And something that's been around that they can kind of perfect over the years and understand and, and just nail, right? Yeah, so... Um, yeah, go ahead, Ben. No, go on. Well, I mean, I think one of the reasons, one of the other things that Logan brought up well, first of all, actually, let's talk about the, pre, the the Prius Prime a little bit more. I think I've mentioned I mentioned Ionic um, plug-in, which I think is a pretty competitive product as well. And uh, he was very eager to mention, you know, the Volt and and other uh, plug-in models, which were just as uh, which were kind of embarrassed by the Prius Prime altogether. So um, there definitely is still a, a you know there there definitely is something to credit the Prius Prime for. I just don't know if it's still all that relevant these days. Yeah, and, and, and another point that Logan made that we've talked about a bit on the show is just you, you can't really find a RAV4 Prime these days because of course. RAV4s are very hard to buy, period. Hybrids and Primes especially. The supply chain issues have really hit that part of the market hard, but also there's a strong demand for them. So those two mm-hmm. things together have made it difficult to find. So you know it's easy for us to say, hey, go out and buy a RAV4 Prime instead, but it's 10 grand more and good luck finding one. So you know. I, I was seriously unimpressed with the Prime's winter performance. I can't recommend it for anyone living in a northern climate. But if you're somewhere where it doesn't get super cold and you can get one a used one um, for relatively cheaper. And again, pointing out that this model has been on the market for a while with no significant changes. Those used models will be just as competitive as the new ones, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, and Logan, his, in his garage, I mean, he's... He's he's an enthusiast. Uh, he has a really interesting um, set of cars. He has a, a Toyota Mirai, which is a hydrogen fuel cell car that mm-hmm. is very difficult to get in Canada just because we don't have any fuel stations. But he also has a Mustang GT uh, performance uh, performance package car. Good choice. And uh, he has the his his wife has the Prime as her daily driver. So they've had a really good experience with the car. They were happy with the, the over the last I think four years. Um, or the, yeah, I think it was four years that they've had it. They've had really good mileage with it and they haven't had any problems. So, you know, from that perspective, it, 
buying it in 2017 or 2018, it, it made a lot more sense than it does today. And or buying the, a used one today. That yeah, was, and it has the reliability that Sammy was mentioning earlier. So, Logan, thanks a lot for writing in. We really It was a very, very thorough message, and I really appreciate you doing that because it gives us something to think about from the perspective of someone who actually owns one and is using it every single day. And also um, we always love to hear from our listeners and get their perspectives. It's, it's something that, you know, when, when we're writing uh, for a magazine or website or whatever, it's, we don't get that kind of back and forth. Uh, The comments section on a lot of websites is often a hostile place. (laughs) So when we can get like really well thought out, feedback like we do on this show from our listeners it, it it feels great and if you want to leave us um well thought out feedback well you know what we're, we're not that picky right if you want to leave some feedback uh we'd appreciate it you can do that really easily but first i would en- encourage you to head on over to our website unnamedautomotivepodcast.com there's a contact form there it should be working i'm worried that maybe logan tried to message us during some sort of like Amazon outage or something like that. Yeah, there was a there was an Amazon outage <laughs> that hurt the podcast earlier this week. So apologies to anyone who had an interruption. And so you can fill out that contact form there, and it lands in our inbox. It should be no problem. Uh, additionally, you can reach out um, to us the old fashioned way on via email. It's Benjamin at BenjaminHunting dot com, or you can find us on social media. You can find Ben on the Happy Filter um, beautiful place known as Instagram. <laughs> the beautiful filter happy place known as Instagram. He's at Hunting Benjamin, and you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Sammy underscore Ha, like you're laughing. And if you want to listen to past episodes and hear past feedbacks, or just you know, kind of get a feel for where the podcast started and where how it got to where it is now, you can always do that at unnamedautomotivepodcast.com. We have all 250 episodes that have been recorded over the past five years available there for you to listen. You can also go to Spotify, Amazon, Google, Apple, a whole bunch of places. We are pretty much everywhere. So your favorite podcast client, you can find us. Please subscribe. Please leave a comment or a rating. It really helps and it gets us in front of a wider audience, which is always fun because uh, then we get even more feedback. Sammy, what are you going to be talking about next week? I've got my hands on a new Ford Escape next week, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking about that because I believe it's a plug-in hybrid version. And that would go right up against that RAV4 Prime that we were talking about earlier. Okay, and I'm going to be talking about the 2022 Ford Bronco. So Ooh. that is a vehicle I've been waiting quite a long time to drive. Very cool. I'm looking forward to doing to talking to you about that, and uh, I'll talk to you next week when we can. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.